Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we're speaking with Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting, a strategic commerce consulting company based in New York. We kick things off talking about the difference between Alibaba and Tmall, a difference Rick refers to as eyes open versus eyes closed, a reference you'll soon understand. We talk at length about the difference between Amazon and the China platforms, getting into how Amazon could learn a thing or two from Alibaba or JD in improving its product selection, and whether or not Alibaba or JD would ever start their own white-level brands of products similar to Amazon Basics. We talk about how different sectors work well or not in the different markets like apparel, luxury, or cosmetics, and we discuss some of the other up-and-coming platforms that are making their marks in the Western world of e-commerce. We also dive into the future of e-commerce, discussing the potential or lack thereof for the Asian platforms to band together or stay independent, and whether social commerce will ever take hold in America as it has in APAC. Enjoy. If there's one motto for really any kind of marketplace, particularly Amazon, it is these three words, you are replaceable. So as far as Amazon is concerned, it is, is sort of next, next brand up. If, if you can't find the product, then the Amazon searches will find the next product uh, or Amazon will source it themselves or they will manufacture it themselves. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Todd. I really appreciate it. Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved with China so heavily? Yeah, I think, um, so my background is originally a technologist, uh, kind of grew up in electrical engineering, computer science, and I've been involved in the e-commerce industry for the past 20 years. And so I think anyone who's been in the commerce field and dealt with marketplaces, you can't avoid understanding, sort of in particular like Chinese, but also the Japanese markets. You know, the influence on the electronic business uh, over, over the decades and kind of the rise of these marketplaces that, that we're all seeing. And I think most recently, um, I was at a company called Pitney Bowes, which helps facilitate cross-border e-commerce uh, from the U.S., you know, to 220 markets around the world. And a uh, little known fact, I was in grad school and our research lab, which was robotics labs, was sponsored by uh, the Japanese corporation Bridgestone. So I actually spent a month in Japan during grad school. Okay, let's kick things off by separating Alibaba and Tmall from Amazon using broad strokes to start. I, I think what a lot of people don't realize, and a lot of Americans don't realize about the Asia PAC market is that they just assume there's sort of a one-to-one comparable company between one market and the other, uh, which is sort of very different. Um, If you look at sort of what Alibaba is, the way I think about Alibaba is if you took Google, Facebook, and Amazon and jammed them all together, 
then you would probably have something approximating Alibaba. And you would probably even have to add other companies on top of that. So I think Alibaba, one of the big differences is I think they're more expansive. They're a much bigger commerce player than Amazon, which is surprising to a lot of people in the US audience. And then I think second is they have been very pure to the marketplace model as opposed to Amazon, who is developing their own products and buying inventory. Why hasn't Alibaba been willing to go where Amazon has gone, buy inventory, and start their own line like an Amazon Basics? Yeah, I, I think Alibaba has been really not wanting to go there. I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, it's, it's, it's risky to buy inventory. Even in America, um, third-party sellers are more profitable for Amazon, and they're growing faster than the Amazon business. So Jeff Bezos, when he led in his uh, conference calls last year, he basically said that the third party sellers are kicking my first party butt. Uh, and he was serious about that. So that's kind of one. I, th I think it would also kind of kill the entire Alibaba model. Um, and it would be very universally disliked by the community um, you know, from, from their side. I read somewhere that Amazon only carries 5% of available products online. Is that true? It's a good question. I, I, I've never actually heard that 5% number. I, I think, look, if you think about consumer goods, who has a bigger selection than Amazon, it's probably hard to find someone in the U.S. market. True. Um, when you think about anything that anyone could individually offer, you really get into a lot of unique products. You know, eBay has a pretty enormous selection when you look at it. And a lot of these things are not cataloged. You have a lot of people that create things. There are a lot of customizable products without SKUs like jewelry or crafts. What's the, you know, what's the UPC on a, on, on a crafty item? You know, there aren't any. And so I think if it has a SKU and a UPC, Oh, there's, oh, Amazon has a lot of those things, but mm -hmm. most, there are a lot of products that aren't big enough to register UPCs for uh, even. And so I think that's probably where that 5% number is. And maybe also in kind of the B2B and services market, um, which Amazon is covering, but not as well as it's kind of business to consumer arm. While we're on the topic of Amazon, Alibaba, Tmall, what is life like as a seller on Alibaba or Tmall versus Amazon as far as getting set up, getting registered, and just existing and being on one platform versus the other? It kind of depends on who you're talking about. You know, Alibaba has two experiences, right? Alibaba and Tmall primarily. Um, Alibaba is more the... And I, I heard this really interesting uh, juxtaposition that a, a Chinese, I was listening to a video from a Chinese seller and they described Amazon, Alibaba as the eye, you have to be very careful with your experience. You don't know who you're buying from. There are not a lot of protections. So it's almost like uh, buy at your own risk. And they described Tmall as the eyes, uh, eyes closed experience, meaning you should not be able to go on Tmall and get defrauded, even if you're buying with your eyes closed. Uh, and that's kind of the brand promise on Tmall. And so I think, I think the way I would describe Amazon versus 
you know, like let's, let's just focus on Tmall if we're talking about businesses, which a lot of the business sellers are on Tmall. Um, at the end of the day, if you go on Amazon, you know you're basically paying rent to Amazon and you it's Amazon's customer. Whereas, and there's not a lot of you can do to develop your own unique brand. Um, unlike Tmall. Tmall, you're expected to invest a lot in your brand, create very high quality videos and imagery and show who you are and your brand story, very much like a website uh, in, in a typical e-commerce fashion. And that is very much not the case on Amazon at all. So I, I think those are two pretty high level differences. What can Amazon do to improve its product selection and what can it learn from Alibaba or JD in that respect? I think, I think ultimately what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to segment the experience at some point um, because no one's Amazon is becoming more and more like the online equivalent of Walmart, by which I mean, it's a lot of consumables, a lot of replenishables and the fashion you're buying there is basically underwear and socks. You know, no one is buying hardly anything else in, from a fashion point of view on Amazon. And so you're not going to shop with your mom for high fashion at Walmart and be like a self-respecting teenager. So, you know, if you think about it from just a brand point of view, you want to go to a place where it has some sort of aspirational style or it has the ability for the, the brand to develop that. And so I think for Amazon to do that, it would need to do something like what Farfetch has done uh, and try to build an aspirational brand marketplace, um, Net-A-Porter or, you know, know, folks like that have really tried to make it uh, a little bit different level than, okay, I'm just going down to another department, you know, inside of a department store. Uh, And yes, it is technically fashion, but it's certainly not high fashion or contemporary or luxury products. Do you think that that speaks to a buying culture difference in that in APAC, and I'm just hypothesizing, they are more willing to spend on stylistic products online versus in North America, where we may still have a hesitancy to purchase things that have a high style component without being able to physically see them first. I, I do think it's a huge, it's a, it, there is a cultural divide there. I, I would agree with you. And I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. I think beauty products in particular, the beauty category, for instance, is enormous in Korea and it is very small online in the U S still. Um, and it's one category that has persistently resisted, um, you know, mass online penetration. You know, so you still see like, you know, Ulta Beauty and Sephora and places like that doing very well in retail comps, whereas the rest of the retail industry in the U.S. is struggling. All right. We have the sounds of New York permeating your abode. I love the authenticity. Yeah, that's right. Do you think that what you mentioned about cosmetics in Korea online versus, uh, you know, what we might see the levels of uh, at, are in the U.S., could this have something to do with the higher level of trust in influencers 
or the level of influence of influencers in Asia versus America? And if so, is it broad or is it vertically? Are there differences in what vertical we're actually talking about in what products where influencers are effective in the US and other verticals not so effective because individualism is taken more seriously in the US versus in APAC, if that's not a, a far reaching judgment? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and I think obviously we always need to be careful with going too broad, but you know, influencers I think have picked up with the rise of Instagram in the US. And, um, and so I think the US is catching up uh, to some extent, um, just witness sort of the Kylie cosmetics and the Kardashian and, you know, the whole micro influencer trend in the U S uh, across many categories, including beauty, actually, um, at least from ability, from a product discovery point of view. Um, so I, I do think that trend keeps uh, increasing, but I think the celebrity culture in uh, Korea and other APAC countries is still, uh, I would say, much, much greater than the, than the U.S. And people tend to want to kind of discover things for themselves uh, in, in a lot of cases as a rule. Why has Amazon failed in sectors like apparel and luxury? I mean, we look at the example of Nike leaving the Amazon marketplace in the U.S., something that would never happen in China. So why is that? And what can e-commerce marketplaces around the world learn from the success Chinese or Japanese platforms have had in difficult sectors like apparel and luxury? Uh, I, I think there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, number one is... It's not clear to me 100% that Nike really tried that hard or that Amazon really tried that hard. It, it almost feels to me as I watch this, first of all, it was always described as a pilot and the number of products that were on the site were very few if you watched one of Nike was on Amazon. And it's almost like this product, like if you're at Nike and you're on this initiative, you it may have been doomed from the beginning just because um, Nike maybe just didn't see they, they're one of the few brands that really has a good hold of their customer and giving that kind of control up to Amazon. I think there is a little bit of, of a corporate philosophy at play here. Um, but I a hundred percent agree with the premise that you would never see this, in the Asia pack, particularly Tmall uh, marketplaces, uh, you know, things like this. In fact, Nike, as it was leaving Amazon, it joined uh, the German marketplace Zalando uh, kind of at the same time. And I think it's because you have more customer and brand ownership on these marketplaces. And it goes back a little bit to what I was saying before about, you know, it becomes, you can create your own little storefront in your own little promotional engine and have followers of your site. And it's not just, you are subject to the whims of the Amazon search engine. And so you need to keep paying Amazon more and more money every month to rent your customers back from them. I wanna go back to something you said at the very beginning about, you don't think Amazon tried that hard. You don't think Nike tried that hard. Is there something behind why Amazon doesn't try that hard? 
are they more agnostic because they are seemingly the only game in town versus a JD or an Alibaba or Tmall? You know, do they actually try harder? Do they take a different approach to maintaining a relationship and creating a beneficial relationship, a two-way relationship with their vendors that Amazon just simply does not? Yeah, I mean, I think the history of Amazon, like if I had to to bring up a, a, mod, like a corporate motto, and it's not a, an official motto by any sense, so hopefully my Amazon friends won't rag on me too much, but uh, if there's one motto for really any kind of marketplace, particularly Amazon, it is these three words, you are replaceable. So as far as Amazon is concerned, it is, is sort of next, next brand up. If, if you can't find the product, then the Amazon searches will find the next product uh, or Amazon will source it themselves or they will manufacture it themselves. And so they are all about fulfilling that consumer demand any way it's possible. And they're always willing to sort of go that. So that's sort of one point. I think the second is Amazon has notoriously bad um, bad is, is maybe even unfair. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost been indifferent to servicing its sellers. <laughs> and that sellers are there, they provide supply, but sellers are in many ways, they're, they're lucky to be there. <laughs> and at the blessing and bidding of Amazon to do, to do some of this stuff. And, and of course, this is overstating it slightly, but uh, I, I think probably many Amazon sellers would, would agree with me on that point and that you are you replaceable and you could run a follow of rules that you didn't know existed that are applied sometimes unevenly. Uh, and it's just a fact of running a big marketplace. On the Tmall side, I think they've been much more f- friendly uh, with sellers and helping them succeed and, and teaching them what it takes to succeed on these channels. So, I mean, they will make you do things for promotions. For instance, you're not going to be featured on Singles Day on Alibaba and any of its properties unless you have inventory in country in their facilities, right? Because it knows you can drive five quadrillion orders, if that's a real number, on Singles Day, you better have the product in-house and you better not, better not be out of stock. Why else would we drive marketing to it? And so I think there's very much a, a more of a partnership attitude from Alibaba because they're, they're not always formulating these backup plans of, okay, well, if this seller doesn't do well, then we're just going to do it ourselves anyway. What other platforms that you may know or understand or had some, you know, just speak to the ones that you, that you know of and, and have an insight on what, what are they? Where are they? What are they doing? Well, what ideas can we take from them? I think fashion luxury resale marketplaces, I think are interesting. You know, I, I think, you know, Farfetch has taken a beating for not making money, but I think that whole international fashion, re- fashion marketplace concept, I think has been super interesting. And I think how they curate their assortment and their image and their brand has been something new in the space from a global point of view. Whereas a lot of these marketplaces are inher- have been inherently regional to their specific country. So I think there's something to be learned there. In the US, I think some of the ones that are interesting are these fashion, these, uh, I would say, even some of these niche marketplaces like uh, StockX or GOAT in the sneaker industry. I mean, these are, these are industries that 
10, 15 years ago, eBay owned and had completely locked up. And it's really only because eBay failed to innovate that these, these resale marketplaces for clothing, fashion, fashion apparel, real, real, you know, IPO'd. And you have these several billion dollar marketplaces in the US that have created these interesting features for their market, like authentication, verification of goods, uh, creating exclusivities, working with, I, I think how they work with fans and really appeal to fans following drops of new product uh, and creating excitement and buzz around those things. Uh, I think those are things that, that a lot of marketplaces can learn, learn from as well. Are there any other platforms that have been successful at owning their own inventory the way that Amazon has with Amazon Basics? I think, look, Amazon didn't invent the white label product. <laughs> so um, it, it's, it's been across retail America for as long as retail has been a thing. It's called house brands. Um, and so Amazon picked that up from Walmart, which is where Amazon learned all of its retail knowledge originally, even if you go back, you know, read like Brad, Brad Stone's Amazon Everything Storebook, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll tell you that. And then, you know, if you go to the supermarket, what do you have? You have Frosted Flakes and then you have, you know, Kroger Flakes, right? Right next to each other. So a lot of these basics products, um, you know, I don't think are unique to Amazon, but Amazon saw a margin opportunity there. That's, that's where some of these things come from. Uh, in terms of what you see in a lot of these markets, either dropship platforms or marketplaces, is a lot of private label products. This is a little different than basic products because um, to avoid competition online, you, uh, you need a unique SKU. And this is something that's you know plagued the mattress industry for 20 years. Like anyone who's tried to shop for a mattress, you know that your, the mattress skew this year is different than last year. And you can't go to five stores and see five different things. The reason is because it doesn't want the consumer to price shop. Well, if you go on, for instance, Wayfair, they have been like very successful in the U.S. at telling their suppliers, don't give me the same exact merchandise that you're giving everyone else. Create a separate line for me. And it... Uh, give it a new brand name even so that it doesn't end up on Amazon and now I'm competing with Amazon. Generally speaking, what are your thoughts on the different platforms in APAC like Rakuten and JD and the fact that there are so many different platforms? Are they all going to last? Is one going to swallow any of the others? Would they potentially be absorbed? Would they be coalesced? Or is that even a part of the online culture, both on the buyer and the seller and the platform side of things? Can we expect it to remain as fragmented as it is? Or would it turn into more of a US model where Amazon has a chokehold on everything? Yeah, I, I think... To me, this question is very similar to when people compare the U.S. and the EU, and particularly where U.S. consumers or U.S. business owners go to enter the European market and assume that the EU is just like the U.S. Oh, these are just different states. Uh, you know, they have a little bit different accents, and I should be able to do business anywhere. And what they quickly find is that 
each of these countries has thousands of years of history that are independent of each other. They have different languages, they have different monetary systems, they have different cultures, they have different regulatory systems. And so I, I think the U.S. is such a homogenous market with such great payment and supply chain infrastructure and like the interstate highway system and the trucking industry that are very well established. And so to expect an entire region like APAC to be as homogenous as the U.S., I think is a little bit flawed thinking. It's, it's more like Western thinking from the beginning. Um, and I, I think particularly within a market, uh, you know, what you might call locality, which is com some combination of language, currency, supply chain infrastructure, and, and culture, customs, you're going to, the market, you know, because of individuality and identification with a culture, um, the market really abhors a single generic monoculture across many different cultures. It, it just, it finds it very hard to adjust that. So what, what you usually find, what, like you see in the European markets, for instance, is like a winner or two in each market. And those could, those could be different across markets. Uh, it could be the same person in each market, but it's also not exactly the same site. And so I think in the in Asia Pac, you see a lot of differences that are even greater than the than the differences than you see in Europe. Uh, and so I do think within a market, you tend to get consolidation. That's one one reason, and in particular, when a market gets more mature, um, the big the big tend to get bigger and gobble up the, the smaller uh, players. Um, I think in, in Japan, for instance, you always have like, you know, these corporations cooperating with the government um, and, you know, Alibaba and JD are clearly the, you know, the big, the big players in, in China. But I, I think uh, many of the smaller, the mid to smaller players in each market will not last. They'll get acquired. And I think if you look at global e-commerce rich writ large, kind of the three big players are Amazon, Alibaba, and Walmart. You know, in terms of you know the biggest retailers in the world and how they would play off in e-commerce. And of course, China is its own universe, and India is its own universe now. And so um, as you as you see. You'll, you'll see these Chinese companies have invested in a lot of the, you know, for instance, in the Indian companies, um, you know, like JD. And uh, so I think there will be consolidation at the top. And a lot of the, I would say, mid to smaller players will tend to fall off over time. Do you think that social commerce is the future of e-commerce? And will it really take off in North America anytime soon? The short answer is no, not the future of e-commerce any more than auctions were the future of commerce, or I don't even necessarily think Amazon or something like that is the future of e-commerce. It will keep evolving. And I think there will be different parts of e-commerce that are, that are really useful in, in various situations. Um, and so for instance, Facebook uh, has made it pretty transparent that they're investing a lot. Like one of Facebook's top three priorities globally is commerce and, and a, like a recent uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, speech. And I think what they're doing is capitalizing on the fact that 
they're one of the greatest advertising platforms in the world. They know a heck of a lot more about the average consumer than even Amazon does, um, which is amazing. And, and certainly more than Google. And all the traffic, you, you click on an ad in Facebook and where do you go? You go off Facebook and you have to go to the website, which means the landing page needs to be optimized. And then you need to find your way to the checkout. And then what if they don't support the payment me method you like, or the shipping method is not what you like, or the item's not gonna arrive in time. And so there are like five or six steps from what the consumer wants to do once they get off of a social site that they are spending 24 seven. And so I think the dream of Facebook commerce is really taking those 27 steps that you have to take after you get off Facebook and just putting them on Facebook or Instagram or one of their properties. And so how can we make things more convenient for the consumer? Um, and, and I think, um, I think they will be successful uh, if they continue to innovate there. I think, the jury is, you know, the book is by no means written and they could fail at it completely, but the opportunity is there. What is your best piece of advice for a brand that heavily sells online in North America that wants to make the jump to selling online in the APAC region? Wow. Uh, my best single piece of advice is find a local partner. <laughs> Most American brands have vastly underestimate the complexity of starting a new business in another country and how different everything from payment, customs, supply chain, language, um, inventory position, marketing can be. And to start in, in a very generic way and assume that buyers in this country are going to act like this or respond to the same types of things. I think having a great local partner is really one of the most solid decisions that any, any American brand that wants to, or, you know, really any, any brand anywhere that wants to start selling in the APAC region, it is like find a great local partner that to me, that's step one. Rick, thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. Uh, I know that you're in New York, and I know you, New York's going through some tough times right now due to the COVID-19. So um, thanks again for, for coming on today, and I wish you all the health and safety for you and yours over there in New York. All right. Uh, I appreciate being on the show, and, and uh, thanks so much. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.